Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions I think on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston. From Bloomberg Radio. The new year picks up right where last year left off with COVID, the Fed, and jobs. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. It was a whole new year this week, but in some ways it felt like an extension of 2021. With the explosion in Omicron cases continuing to set new records in the United States and for that matter around the world. COVID in the environment here and in the world is probably here to stay. But COVID, as we're dealing with it now, is not here to stay. But so far, the cases appear to be less severe. And the new mayor of New York, Eric Adams, spoke for many when he said, we just need to move forward and get our lives back. This city is going to function. We're going to be safe and we're going to stay open. When it comes to the Fed, we learned this week that it really means what it says about tightening monetary policy. Releasing minutes from its December meeting saying that, quote, it may become warranted to increase the federal funds rate sooner or at a faster pace. And even that reducing the balance sheet may come on the heels of any rate tightening, which Michael Kantopoulos of Richard Bernstein said wasn't necessarily expected. March is a live meeting for hikes. I think the only surprise, perhaps, was sort of the view on the balance sheet runoff. And if we had any doubts remaining about the Fed meeting being live in March, they may have been answered when the jobs numbers came in on Friday. Disappointing on the overall number, but showing robust growth in wages of 4.7% year over year and an unemployment rate falling down to 3.9%, way below what anyone expected at this point. The markets took this eventful week as a re-rating of risk, with the S&P 500 down almost 2% for the week, its worst start to a year since 
since 2016, while the Nasdaq was even worse, down over 4.5%. And bonds sold off, with the 10-year yield adding over 25 basis points, ending up over 1.76%. Here to explain this wild first week of the new year are Katie Koch, Goldman Sachs Global Co-Head of Fundamental Equity Funds, and Greg Peters, Co-CIO of PGM Fixed Income. So welcome both of you to be back on Wall Street Week. Greg, I'm going to start with you because to some extent, fixed income bonds really drove a lot of the week. Explain what happened here because we did have the Fed minutes, but, but we were getting increased rates even before we got to the minutes. Yeah, so the markets were skittish before the minutes, and then the minutes came out, and as you mentioned, David, it basically reaffirmed what they said before. The surprise was, though, the balance sheet runoff. I think that did take uh, investors by surprise. But what you really experienced this week was just a, a re-rating of the Fed. Uh, and so you've seen Fed hikes pulled forward, more aggressive uh, over the near term. And I think the markets didn't like that. Now, I think it's important to go back in time, though. So March wasn't even on the table contemplated uh, you know, six months ago, three months ago, and now it's a live meeting. So it really is representative of how quickly uh, uh, the Fed has kind of shifted gears here. So, so, Katie, over to you on the equity side. Uh, equities might have reacted violently to this. I wouldn't say they did. The main story I thought from the week, you correct me on equities, was what happened with tech. Yeah, tech had a, a very disappointing week of performance. Let me let me just back up and say that um, we have had uh, the, the worst start to equity markets since 2016. And, and kind of big picture, we've had this 12 years um, of a great environment of rates going down and markets going up, and, and we're all kind of getting used to a new normal. Um, and so that's played out in and the volatility that we've had, and we're now down um, more than one and a half percent year to date on equities. As you pointed out, um, the locus of a lot of that pressure has been in technology. Um, the reason for that, and people have varying levels of familiarity, so I'll just say is that um, when you look at tech companies, most of the value is far out at terminal value. So when the rate curve steepens, that part of the market sells off the most. <laughs> It's really raising this question for everybody who's had a lot of capital allocated to tech. Um, is tech over? Um, is this the end of, of tech outperformance? We, we don't think that's the case. We continue to have um, a lot of capital committed there. We appreciate there's going to be some near-term headwinds, but very long-term, even medium to long-term, we know that even the companies in the value part of the market that are leading the market now, so take banks, for example, one of the number one things that they're going to spend money on over the coming years is innovating themselves on AI, uh, cybersecurity, moving workloads to the cloud. And so we know that all companies, regardless of whether they're value or growth, are going to be doing a lot of tech spending. And that should actually accrue to these companies over the medium to long term. So we would encourage people to look at these dislocations as, as opportunities to pick up exposure selectively. Uh, so, so, Greg, you mentioned the jobs numbers. Why don't you unpack that a little bit? What jumped out at you? Uh, one of the things that I noticed, obviously, was the increase in wages. Absolutely. Uh, uh, that was a clear focus uh, from a market perspective. The headline number was disappointing, let's say, you know, 199 uh, new ads. But I think you have to look at the uh, four-month average, which is substantially higher. It's about 369. So what the market really looked at closely was the acceleration uh, uh, in wages. And so I will say we haven't seen those wages create kind of broader inflation pressures, but that's the worry. I think that's the classic economic worry. 
that uh, many have. And that's why you've, you've seen the rhetoric really shift and get cemented around that Marsh meeting be, uh, being in play. So uh, it's really about wages as uh, um, investors and economists in particular are worried about wages really kind of infiltrating the entire system, thereby creating broad-based inflation. But the wage issue, in my mind, is uh, an important positive development, not a negative one. And I think it's been flipped around unnecessarily. Yeah, it's always easier to criticize when we're up in the bleachers and not down the arena, right? Thank you so much, Greg Peters and Katie Koch. They're both going to stay with us as we turn from this week in the markets to longer-term implications for investors. That's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Still with us are Greg Peters of PGM Fixed Income and Katie Koch of Goldman Sachs. So, Katie, let's turn from this week to the longer term with respect to equities first, and then we'll turn to Greg on fixed income. Uh, as we go into 2022, uh, you draw an interesting distinction between disruptors and disrupt dead. Uh, tell us about some of the disruptions you're looking at coming up this year for equities. Sure. Whenever we, we turn the, the page on the calendar for a new year, we do like to do some longer term thinking about where we've come from in equity markets and where we're going. And I just think it's really interesting to know we were looking at the top 10 companies as at uh, the beginning of 2022. And if you go back 20 years, there's actually only one that's still a top 10 company, which is Microsoft. Um, and it's 5X um, over that period. The nine others on that list have actually detracted a total of $235 billion of, of market cap over that period. And I think that just underscores the importance of, of being on the right side of the dis of disruption um, and picking the companies that you think are going to drive forward 
good fortunes in the future. We're really focused just to end on, on three main themes going into this year, but I actually think they're going to be relevant for investors for most of the, the decade. And those themes are the future of healthcare, everything from genomics to robotic surgery, the future of the planet. So this idea of transitioning to a more sustainable planet, yes, it's about renewables, um, but also um, sustainable consumption, circular economy. We're invested in a company, for example, that recycles genes. And then finally, we were talking about tech earlier. We're big believers that we need to invest beyond the fangs, down the market cap and around the world, because tech power is going to get diffused out of Silicon Valley um, into the smaller cap part of the market, but also have many local winners around emerging markets. Take Pag Segura, for example, in a company listed in Brazil. It's a micro merchant expert in payments in Brazil. And so these are some of the themes that we think are going to matter in 2022, but well beyond for long term oriented investors. This is a great macro uh, things to keep an eye on. Greg, to come over to you. I'm going to make it simpler perhaps than it is. It looks to me for fixed income, it's really all about the Fed. And frankly, whether there might be a policy error. I mean, because now we know we're going to have some tapering of the buying. We're going to have some rate increases. And now this week we found out we're going to actually have some quantitative tape, uh, tightening, it looks like. No, I completely agree. I think the fundamental risk uh, for the markets this year, not just fixed income, but broadly speaking, uh, uh, is a central bank policy error. Uh, and it looks like we're careening towards that. And look, it is a very difficult environment to ascertain. Uh, you know, that so much is clouded by COVID opening, reopening, closures, those types of things. Uh, but, uh, but for us, we're looking at the fixed income market in several ways. First, from a yield perspective, with the 10-year currently, just call it a 175, that's exactly where we hit in March of last year. Uh, that was the top. I think we're getting close to the uh, top in yield once again. So it might overshoot. So the near term is always more difficult, of course. But I think, you know, looking out over time at 175, 10 year, uh, we actually see value there. And we see value because we think there's a, a gravitational pull towards disinflation. There's a demographic issue uh, here in the uh, U.S. and globally uh, in, uh, in many respects. And let's not forget, we put on a lot of debt to fight the virus, and that acts as a, a, a draw on growth. So uh, for that reason, we're, we're actually pretty constructive uh, as yields kind of hit these levels here. Uh, uh, and so we might be wrong over the near term, of course, as things have a tendency of overshooting. I, I think six months to 12 months from now, uh, you'll be rewarded. So I'm going to guess, Katie, but I'm going to guess that if, in fact, Greg is right, that we're talking 175, it could overshoot for a time and come back down. You're going to be fine with that on the equity side. Yeah, we should. Equity markets should be able to digest that. And just to be very clear on our outlook, while we do expect volatility, and as you mentioned at the outset, we haven't had a great start, we do actually think equity markets uh, at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, we believe that they will outperform cash and bonds. So we do think it's the right asset class to, to be in. Uh, one might need to look further than the broad U.S. equity market, which has been a, a great thing to own the last 12 years. That was the best thing to own in the markets. You may need to look further to that abroad, to emerging markets or small cap, but we do expect equity markets to outperform and that yield level should be should be fine for equity markets. Well, let's just pick up on that emerging markets here and go back to Greg for a moment, because Greg, I know you've thought a fair amount about what's going on with China, because China's off to a rather rocky start at the beginning of this year as well in their property market and some of the debt over there. What do you make of emerging market debt, either China or otherwise? Yeah, so China and emerging markets broadly have been a value trap. Right. Uh, and so one of the oddities of the recovery here is that typically kind of emerging markets uh, have a higher beta 
component versus developed markets, and you haven't seen that. And there's reasons behind it, of course. Uh, and so in fixed income, uh, EM has underperformed. Um, and so I think it might be a tad early still. But, you know, as I look at 2022, uh, I'm looking at emerging markets as uh, an area for real alpha opportunity. So um, I, I think it's been a value trap uh, for good reason. But I think it's changing and pricing's changing. Uh, and of course, it's predicated on central bank policy there as well, as uh, you need to see inflation kind of come off the boil, but but uh, see real opportunities. And China is not what it used to be. And I think uh, investors need to kind of get a grip around that new reality, which is China is slowing and will continue to slow. Um, and it's just a natural kind of maturation process, right, of the economy. So uh, it has a very different uh, input into the global economy as a result. And I think over time, investors will continue to kind of understand what that really means. Katie, one thing that we dealt with in 2021 and we're still dealing with today is semiconductors. And I wonder about the semiconductor sector and how you see it developing, because obviously we've had a real shortage, real supply chain problems there. It's a fairly concentrated supply system. <laughs> At the same time, there's a lot of talk about huge investment in production, including in the United States. Yes, I mean, when we look at 2022 as a year, last year was recovery, markets up 30%. We're really focused on resilience across a lot of things as being a great investment opportunity, and the supply chain certainly won. And semis is the most important part of it. Also very relevant to China, which, which Greg just spoke about. So very big picture, 12% of U.S. GDP roughly runs through the factory floors of Taiwan um, because there is one company in Taiwan that has the ability to manufacture at the leading edge of logic, which is about five nanometers. And I'm not going to go into too much detail, but the headline is in the U.S., we really can only manufacture at 10 nanometers. And that's a problem because all of the technology we've spoken about on this segment that we're so excited about, whether it's the cloud, AI, 5G, etc., they're chip-dependent technologies. And we do not, as a country, and actually the Chinese feel the same way, want to be dependent on one public company from the perspective of the U.S. and what many people would be argue is a hot geopolitical zone for the manufacturing of our most important technologies and for a very significant portion of GDP. Thank you so much to Greg Peters of PGM Fixed Income and to Katie Koch of Goldman Sachs. Coming up, the threat to capitalism if we don't start building bridges to a dynamic and disruptive future instead of building walls to try to keep it away. We talk with Glenn Hubbard of the Columbia Business School about his new book, The Wall and the Bridge. We often talk about the growth and dynamism side of capitalism. That's why we're in the game. It's hugely important. The flip side of its disruption. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Walls. We spent much of the 90s tearing them down, whether the physical kind. Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. Or the walls of tariffs and regulation. But then competition from foreign goods and from technology started to hit people where it hurt, in their jobs. 
Our jobs are going to Mexico. Our jobs are going to other countries. China and others are making our product. We don't make it anymore. And so some have started building walls again. But former Columbia Business School Dean Glenn Hubbard says it's bridges to help workers adjust change rather than walls to protect workers that we really need. In The Wall and the Bridge, Hubbard proposes a series of private and government programs to help workers build a bridge to the future. Because in the end, even painful change is essential to capitalism, which, echoing Ken Langone, is the system that in the long run will do the most people the most good. Which works better for everybody. And there's no doubt in my mind, capitalism. And we're delighted to be joined now by one of our regular contributors here on Wall Street. He's Glenn Hubbard, former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, certainly of Columbia Business School, and most important for this purpose, the author of the new book, The Wall and the Bridge. Glenn, thank you so much for being back with us. It's a fascinating book, an important book. In reading through it, I have the strong sense part of your motivation was you have some concerns for the future of capitalism, because to some extent, inherent in capitalism is a dynamism and a creativity that can lead to some destructive quality. I think that's 100% right, David. You know, it's, it's like a coin with two sides. Economists, policymakers, business people, we often talk about the growth and dynamism side of capitalism. That's why we're in the game. It's hugely important. The flip side of it's disruption. Uh, many of us, frankly, most of us win from a lot of the disruptions I talk about in the book, but not everybody. And I think we have to notice those who've been left behind and figure out how do we get everybody to be able to participate in our economy? Not a new idea. It was actually Adam Smith's idea. We need to put the liberal back in neoliberalism. Classical liberal, that is, a la Smith. Uh, let me ask you, Glenn, as an economist, does uh, dynamic capitalism inherently lead to increasing inequality? Uh, I don't know about that, but it certainly needs to generate churn and disruption. You know, many jobs and industries that exist today didn't exist 100 years ago. That's the, the good news. The flip side of that is that people's livelihoods, communities, firms, and industries can be at risk. That, too, is not a bad thing as long as we prepare people. You know, when Adam Smith talked about the wealth of nations, he talked about competition and openness, and those are good things. But I think if Smith were alive today, he would talk about the ability to compete. In the world we have with technological change and globalization, is everybody really at the starting line? I think that's the inequality that would have worried Smith and should worry us. Uh, Glenn, in your book, there's a lot of talk about dynamism, creativity, innovation, and how important that is for a society, for growth, and for the individuals in it. At the same time, you have a distributive notion as well called mass flourishing, that you actually go back to Adam Smith and say, this was consistent with Adam Smith. Talk to us about mass flourishing. Well, mass flourishing is more than GDP. You know, when Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations, there was no GDP, although he did talk about maximizing the size of, of output. Uh, I also think, though, of the Smith of the theory of moral sentiments, where he used an expression, mutual sympathy, that today we might call empathy. I think the right economic idea is everybody in the book, everybody participating, everybody flourishing. And to the minds of the classical economists, Flourishing meant participating in the economy, the ability to have meaningful work. And I think that's really what the book is about. How do you build bridges to that kind of work? A bridge either takes you to somewhere or brings you back. And taking you to could be preparing you for the jobs of today and tomorrow. And taking you back is rethinking social insurance. Do we have a way to reconnect people 
who fall out of the boat to the boat. And what if you knew for a certainty that in order to have truly mass flourishing, you had to give up some of the dynamism? Would you make that trade? I wouldn't, and that's the point of the book. It's, I think there are a number of people that I um, uh, note in the book that Adam Smith would school if he were here today that suggest that you can just sort of haircut dynamism. The real issue is compensating people who've been left behind. We, we have old expressions in economics. The same professor who told you that uh, trade is good or technological advances are good, he or she also told you that's because the gainers can compensate the losers. And by compensation, what I talk about is not writing people a check or pinching them off, but investing in getting people connected, preparing people for work, uh, and preparing people who got left behind. That's something we used to do in the country. The land-grant colleges of the 19th century, the GI Bill of the 20th century. I suggest ways we could bring those life to life today. Glenn Hubbard, thank you so very much. He's the author of this terrific, fascinating, and really important new book, The Wall and the Bridge. Of course, he's from Columbia Business School. Thank you, Glenn. Coming up, we wrap up the week, as we always do, with special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. Orchestrating um, the turning down the temperature uh, in the economy, I think, is uh, going to be very challenging from here. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA, SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. 
This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston, and we're delighted now to be joined once again for the first time in the new year by our special contributor. He is Larry Summers of Harvard. So happy new year, Larry. Great to have you with us. Let's start with the big news of the week, perhaps, came on Friday with those jobs numbers where people were a bit disappointed in the overall number, but there were a lot of other numbers in there that suggested we've got a pretty robust labor market. This was a strong report. Uh, after this report, the vacancies to unemployment ratio is going to be higher than it's uh, ever been. We saw wage growth at rates, uh, depending on which measure you used, 7 to 8 percent annualized rates in the last month. And if you look at the sequence of reports, uh, it's been accelerating. The, jo the establishment number was uh, disappointing, but the previous months were substantially revised upwards, and I suspect this one will be as well. I don't think anybody can look at this labor market and this jobs report and believe that we have a sustainable degree of heat in the labor market. The level of heat that we have in the labor market is consistent not just with high inflation, but is consistent with accelerating uh, inflation. And there isn't going to be a path to less inflation without a uh, cooler uh, labor market. And I think that has to be uh, sobering. So, Larry, last year, the Fed seemed to be reassured, at least for part of the year, that there was some slack in the labor market that would absorb some of that inflation. Is there any doubt in your mind right now that we're in full employment? Because we not only had these numbers, we also had the JOLTS numbers come out. And boy, we're record numbers of quits. David, uh, I've been doing this long enough that there's always doubt uh, in my mind. Nothing is uh, certain. But the probability that we are past a sustainable level of heat uh, in the economy is higher than I can remember it uh, at any point in the 40 years that I've been uh, watching these things. I think that the Fed is uh, recognizing that, and that's why they've executed in the last uh, three months such a strong pivot from talk of transitory inflation and the need to ensure employment targets and the need to guard against deflation, which was their uh, rhetoric just a few months ago, to a focus on uh, inflation uh, now, to accelerating the tightening, to uh, signaling the, the very real and even likely possibility of rate increases in uh, March. Uh, we are well into the adjustment of monetary policy. My own view is that uh, the Fed and the markets are still not recognizing what's likely to be necessary. The market judgment and the Fed's judgment is that uh, you can somehow contain this inflation without rates ever rising above 2.5% uh, in terms of the Fed funds rate. I don't think that's very likely uh, to turn out to be right. And if it does turn out to be right, it's only because the economy is extraordinarily vulnerable to rate increases, which will mean problems of uh, its own. So I think we're headed into a very challenging period for the Fed in terms of executing a soft landing 
Um, it looks to me like we're going to need some meaningful deceleration in nominal wage growth, not necessarily in real wage growth, but in nominal uh, wage uh, growth. And if we don't have much experience of getting such decelerations in nominal wage growth without a substantial, um, well, at least some slowdown uh, in uh, the economy. So orchestrating um, the turning down the temperature uh, in the economy, I think, is uh, going to be very challenging from here. Well, let's pick up exactly on that point, orchestrating this cooling down, because we also had a piece of news out that the market certainly reacted to this week, which is the Fed minutes from the December meeting, in which they said not only are we going to talk about tapering, we might well have rate increases more and sooner than we thought. And by the way, we might get to quantitative th cutting, actually. We're going to actually tighten the quantitative easing instead of just tapering. Uh, is that enough? And by the way, can they do all of that stuff in the time allotted? David, they can make the choices that they uh, want to, that uh, they want to make. Certainly there have been periods when the Fed was raising rates uh, 25 basis points uh, in uh, a given uh, at every meeting for periods of uh, a year or uh, or more. So it's certainly something that is uh, technically possible. I think the I think what we're going to find out is what the vulnerability of the economy is uh, to uh, rate increases. If that vulnerability is not greater than it has been historically, then it's really quite unrealistic to think that we're going to keep inflation under control with 2% rates. It may be, as some uh, argue, that because of greater levels of debt, because asset prices are substantially uh, inflated, the economy is more vulnerable than usual uh, to rate increases or to uh, quantitative uh, tightening. So it's not an easy uh, balance uh, that they're going to have to strike. My guess is that we're headed into a difficult period because I don't think that inflation is likely to come down very quickly. And indeed, it's almost baked in that the annualized inflation figures are going to be rising for uh, the next several months because of the very uh, flattering compares and, or very low compares in January and February of uh, last year. So my own sense is really of the difficulty uh, of this. and. The challenge for uh, the Fed is that they're likely to see some amount of uh, fluctuation in financial markets and concern about growth before they see the declines in uh, inflation that are substantial. And then they're going to have a very difficult, then they're going to have a very difficult set of decisions to make. Well said. Thank you so much once again for being with us as our very special contributor on Wall Street Week. He is Larry Summers of Harvard. Finally, one more thought. And this time it's not from me. It's from Carlisle co-founder David Rubenstein about the events of a year ago 
when a mob stormed the Capitol building to stop one of the most important steps in the U.S. constitutional process, the counting of the electoral votes. His reflections. In my lifetime, January 6th will be an important day because that is the day when we had an invasion of the Capitol, the first time it's happened since 1814 when the British invaded our country. And nobody really thought this could happen. And so it's amazing to me that it didn't happen. But more amazing to me is that one year later, one year later, we are still in the same situation. If, if we didn't prevent another thing by having cops or military people there today, I suspect you could have another invasion of the Capitol. There are a lot of people who really, really are upset with the way the election went against Donald Trump or the way that other things have happened. And so I do think there are a lot of people in this country today who do believe the election was stolen. There are a lot of people in this country today who believe that those who stormed the Capitol were not insurrectionists, but just tourists and not doing anything that's inappropriate. And as a result, I think the country is bitterly divided. It's not as bad as a civil war, but it's clearly a country is divided and it's reflected in the Congress. The Congress is bitterly divided. Nothing is really getting done of any consequence because the country is really bitterly divided. The business community, I think, is disappointed that the country hasn't moved on. What business people like is certainty, predictability. And right now, there's a lot of uh, uncertainty and a lack of predictability about what the federal government is going to do. So I think that the business community, by and large, wishes we had moved forward and we were not in a situation we are today. But the business community is a realistic community, and they recognize that right now the country is fairly divided. The Congress is fairly divided. It's unlikely we're going to get major legislation one way or the other that President uh, Biden wants. So I think the business community would like to not be involved in commenting on this. The business community wishes this was behind us, but the business community recognizes that for the foreseeable future, we're going to be living with this division in the country, and this bitter di the division is going to be probably increasing, not decreasing. The rule of law did prevail. There were 65 uh, lawsuits that were filed uh, by the people who thought the election was stolen, and 65 times the courts threw them out. So the rule of law did prevail. And the truth is that the rule of law does prevail in this country. And the truth is the military, you now know, was not prepared to overtake the government, though there were some people in the administration, I think, who wanted that to happen. But the military stayed out of it, and the rule of law did prevail. Whether it will prevail in the future, I don't know. But right now, I think the rule of law uh, is going to prevail in the United States. And that is one thing that people around the rest of the world really admire us for, which is the rule of law does exist in this country. And despite the events of January 6th, rule of law did prevail. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.